It was a seaport, an entertainment center, and sports capital all in one. And it was virtually teeming with tourists every single day. It valued a rugged individualism that prized self-sufficiency, and it, it saw wealth as the key to status within society. Its residents followed the preachers who had a captivating present and an entertaining delivery. They weren't at all concerned with content because their religion was driven by experience. The vast majority of religious people in this city had little or no theology. Frankly, they had no interest in gaining any more of it. Regardless of their religious affiliation, they wanted health, wealth, protection, and sustenance, not any sort of moral transformation. Does this city sound at all familiar? Maybe San Francisco? Miami, or perhaps New York City? This could certainly be very well true of almost all the cities in our country. But this particular city is the ancient city of Corinth, a very important city in Greece, located on the main shipping highway from Rome all the way to the east. The Apostle Paul labored for many months to plant a church in this strategic city, and sometime after he started it, he went away, he left. And then a few years later, he got disturbing news that there were divisions and problems within this church. So Paul wrote him a letter, the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. Well, Paul followed up and visited a second time to check in on these problems, but his visit did not go very well at all. Commentators call this the painful visit. Apparently, Paul flopped. He failed, and, and the problems that he went to fix did not get fixed. So he left discouraged. And he wrote what is called the severe letter. We don't have a copy of that letter. It's, it's not in our Bibles. But we know that it was very sharp. It's referred to in 2 Corinthians. It was pointed and sharp, and by all appearances, it had an effect. So when Paul caught wind that this severe letter had led to change, in joy, he wrote the letter that we call 2 Corinthians. Well, as I have the opportunity to preach from time to time over the upcoming months, the upcoming years even, Lord willing, my plan is to preach through this letter to work through 2 Corinthians as I have the opportunity. It is without doubt the most personal and emotional letter Paul wrote. Nowhere else in all of Paul's writing is his heart so torn and exposed as it is here. And like no other letter, it shows us Paul's white-hot passion. A theologically driven passion for the purity of God's people. This is an old letter. It's really old. In fact, this letter is 
about 1960 years old. We're a long ways removed from it, but we desperately need its message. The Corinthians needed it. We need it. We need the message of this letter about the nature of the gospel in authentic Christian ministry. Barrett said that writing 2 Corinthians must have come near to breaking Paul. In a church that is prepared to read it with him and understand it, may find itself broken too. So Father, we ask now as we come into this letter, we pray for your help that we would be affected by your word here. We pray that your spirit would be active now amongst us. We pray you'd convict us and encourage us. And Father, we call on you to help and assist and to do your work through your word for our good and for your glory. We ask this through Christ. Amen. So I invite you to this letter, 2 Corinthians, the letter of 2 Corinthians, and we're going to look this morning at the first 11 verses. The first 11 verses, Paul begins in verses 1 and 2 with a greeting. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, the region there. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this greeting, we see that Christ sends Paul in accordance with God's will. So the implication then here is that to reject Paul is to reject Christ, which in turn is to reject God. Paul's apostolic authority, the authority which he asserts here, was not the product of his own initiative, cleverness, people skills, political savvy, or education. He represents Christ himself rather than his own interests. The saints referred to here in verse 1 is one of the most common designations for God's people in the New Testament. A saint is not a special class of Christians. It's referring to all believers who have been set apart as belonging to God. And while we're separated from these saints in Corinth by almost 2,000 years, it is our identity today, our identity as the church of God, that provides continuity and relevance to Paul's words here. For we share the same Father and the same Lord. We are brothers and sisters with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. After greeting the Corinthians, Paul introduces his letter, starting in verse 3. And as we read this, as we look at this passage, just a couple things to note as we read. And the first is that Paul uses the plural. So he refers to himself as we 
in us. That's known as the apostolic we. It's not saying that all of this is in the context of Paul and a group of other people. It simply reflects his awareness that he's not speaking just as an individual, but as a representative of the entire apostolic office. So you'll see the we and the us. It's Paul. He's just thinking broader to the whole office of apostle. And in these verses that we're going to read here, Paul talks a lot about suffering and comfort. He, suffering, comfort, affliction, weakness, it's a theme that runs through the whole letter. But, but that theme, those themes of comfort and suffering are packed in verses 3 through 11. More concentrated here than anywhere else in the New Testament. So he introduces the letter by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our suffering, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope, and He will deliver us, that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. My goal for you this morning is to see two pictures in this passage, two glimpses, two snapshots. And it's that we will see here a right view of God, and that we will see a right view of suffering. So let's start with a right view of God. Paul begins this letter with praise to God for who He is. For who He is. He's described here in verse 3 in three ways. First, God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is no longer known as simply the Father of Israel. That's who He had been known as all throughout the Old Testament. But through Jesus Christ, all people, both Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father. There's a lot of people today who are very comfortable with describing their God as a God of comfort and mercy but they don't want to see Him as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But over and over in Scripture, we see statements like this that tell us, that make it clear, Jesus is God. And it is through Him that we have access to the Father. God really is not our Father at all if Jesus is not our Lord. Second, Paul describes God as the Father of mercies. The Father of mercies. And in all of us in our culture, we have an idea of what it means to be the Father of something, right? So when we say that Dr. James Naismith is the Father of basketball, what do we mean? Well, we mean that he was the guy back in 1891 who put up the peach baskets at a YMCA, and he didn't know it at the time, but he was starting a sport which has changed and developed that we enjoy and participate in today. So by Dr. James Naismith being the father of basketball, by saying that, we mean that basketball started with him. It comes from him. And so when Paul says here that God is the Father of mercies, he's saying and meaning that mercy and compassion come from God. If if there's any mercy in the world, it comes from Him. Third, he describes God as the God of all comfort. God is the God of comfort. Comfort is God's nature what this means. It's it's who God is. And we can see here, as Paul describes comfort in these verses, we get a picture of what this comfort from God is like. What this comfort from God is like. First, it's a comfort that's real. It's real comfort. In modern English, one has said that the word comfort has gone soft taking today on the idea of emotional relief or a sense of well-being, physical ease, satisfaction, and freedom from pain and misery. Something like what we look for and hopefully find while spending a quiet and relaxing evening in front of a warm fire in our favorite recliner with our feet up, snuggling up with a soft down comforter while eating a large bowl of caribou coffee brand java chunk ice cream (laughs) and or sipping our favorite perfect cup of coffee or possibly even tea The comfort here that God is talking about, this comfort from God, it goes so much deeper than that. It's the idea of encouragement and help. Encouragement and help that it actually addresses the problem. That's the comfort that comes from God. So rather than just making us feel good, Garland says God's comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits 
so that one faces the troubles of life with an unbending resolve and an unending assurance. This comfort from God is real. Second, we see it's complete. He's the God of all comfort. So there's no comfort we need that God is unable to give. It's complete. Third, this comfort is guaranteed. God gives this comfort to His people. It's guaranteed to them. In verse 4, we see that. He gives it. And we see in verse 7 and verse 10 that the experience of God's deliverance in the past and the corresponding certainty of His deliverance in the future is the comfort of His people in the present. It's sure. It's certain. It's guaranteed. The picture of God that we see here is a good reminder to us that God's actions always flow out of His character. God is the God of comfort because as we read in Psalm 46 this morning, He is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. So who God is, is not in flux. He's not in the process of development in response to His actions or the actions of other people. Because God is the God of all comfort, He comforts Paul. He's not the God of all comfort because Paul experiences his comfort. Significant we get that. All of God's actions flow out of who he is, of his character. God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. This is who God is. And we must see God rightly. And we must always allow the truth of His Word to shape how we see Him. Not our own experiences. Not our own opinions. So we see first a right view of God. Second in this passage, we see a right view of suffering. We see a right view of suffering. It's everywhere in these verses, isn't it? As we read it, Paul keeps talking about and referencing suffering. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote this, he knew a thing or two about suffering. God told Paul in in, in Acts 9, after Paul met the Lord on the road to Damascus, Paul told Ananias to go put his hands on Paul's eyes so he could regain his sight. And Ananias was like, him? He's the guy who was killing Christians. And God tells Ananias, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And did he ever suffer? Paul suffered nakedness, beatings, imprisonment, criminal assault, shipwreck, betrayal, desolation, desertion, and more. 
Paul's life was a perpetual death. He says later in chapter 4 that his life was always given over to death for Jesus' sake. In verse 8 here, Paul tells the Corinthians of his affliction in Asia. Now, we're not told what specifically that, that was. We really don't know. We're not sure. But whatever it was, Paul tells them, I thought I was a goner. I, I was done. I thought I was dead. In verse 5, Paul states that he shared abundantly in Christ's sufferings. And there are different views regarding what precisely he's referring to here by the sufferings of Christ. But it seems most likely, at least to me, that Paul is referring to the sufferings that Christ himself endured. In chapter 4 of this letter, Paul says that he carries about in his body the dying of Jesus. So Paul sees his suffering in some sense as the continuation of Jesus' suffering in the flesh, as his apostolic ministry extends in some way Christ's earthly ministry. So as we work towards applying this to our lives, we've, we've got to realize, understanding this passage, the context, it's important that we realize that there is both a qualitative and quantitative difference between our personal suffering and the daily experience of suffering that was an essential aspect of Paul's calling as an apostle. The apostles were the foundations of the church, and their suffering in a unique way was essential to that foundation. So, the suffering of sickness that pretty much everyone I know has experienced to one degree or another recently, or is currently now experiencing, or the suffering we all experienced really recently of losing an hour of sleep. Okay, all of this is of a different nature. All of our suffering is of a different nature. And it is certainly, is it not, it's all certainly of a lesser degree than Paul's suffering as an apostle. We have really no parallels for the founding apostles today. But the closest parallel comes with those who are doing apostle-like work. So, pioneer missionaries who are taking the gospel to a dangerous place, church planners who are seeking to plant a church in a city that has not been reached with the gospel, pastors, elders who faithfully preach God's word and lead his people. All of these will share in the sufferings of Christ uniquely as they do his work. And even though none of you are pioneer missionaries or church planters 
in unreached cities, at least yet. And most of you are not currently serving as an elder. There is still in this word on suffering an application for you. There is something here for every true and committed Christian as we consider suffering in our lives. So let's go there. Let's get practical. Let's apply this to our lives and see here what God says about suffering in our lives. First thing we see is that suffering is inevitable. Suffering is inevitable. We read this passage from Paul here. It's really, I think, easy to see that it doesn't jive with the health and wealth gospel we hear so often, which says that those who truly live by faith are not subject to emotional or mental illness, physical illness, or financial distress. It doesn't work here. And as we remember from our recent journey through 1 Peter, all Christians will suffer. It's inevitable. While this is the reality, it's going to happen, we should note that Paul in no way glorifies suffering. There's no evidence that he sought it or encouraged others to seek it as if it were somehow some unique or special sign of a special spirituality. Suffering is not intrinsically good in and of itself. It's not. Nor is it a Christian virtue. Rather, in the words of Haifman, suffering is a page in the textbook God used. I'm sorry. Haifman said that suffering is a page in the textbook used in God's school of faith. And I look at my life. And, and I, I, I think and examine my life and where's the suffering? Am I even really suffering? And I'm struck by the apparent lack of it, the absence of it. And, and, and I think there's, there's a, I've been convicted in evaluating this to consider the relationship between, because I think it's here, there's a relationship between the orientation of my life as a follower of Christ in suffering. And I've been convicted to consider that relationship. John Piper challenges me so much. He, he has a word for us here that is very challenging. He says that when you know that your future is in the hands of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise God who promises to work all things for your good, you are free to take any risk that love demands, no matter what the cost. It is a biblical truth that the more earnest we become about being salt of the earth and light of the world, and the more devoted we become to reaching unreached peoples of the world and exposing the works of darkness and loosing the bonds of sin and Satan, the more we will suffer. Now, of course, not all Christians must or will suffer alike in the same way. And precisely what, when, and how much we suffer is entirely up to God. But we are called to live a life of faith. And this life of faith will involve suffering. It's inevitable. 
Second, we see that suffering has a purpose. Suffering has a purpose. We, we so often are rightly wonder, we ask the why questions, and why is this happening? Why am I going through this? And God doesn't give us all the answers, right? He didn't give all the answers to Job. But he does speak to that question. And we see here some reasons why. For Paul, there was no such thing as luck or an accident. He saw God's total control and absolute sovereignty extending over all things, including his suffering. So Paul realized his suffering wasn't senseless. It wasn't pointless. It had a purpose. God was working in and through his life. And the same is true for us. So as we think of our suffering, and we wonder why, we have some answers here. First, we suffer or purpose for our suffering is that we might rely on God rather than on ourselves. We might rely on God rather than on ourselves. Look at verse 9. He says it flat out. He's talking about this sentence of death he felt. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He tells them why. He gives the purpose. A deep certainty of death for Paul led to a deeper trust in God. Hey, Paul wasn't Superman. The apostles weren't superheroes. And apparently he too struggled with self-reliance. The roots of our pride grow deep and they're not easily dislodged. And because of that, God may, God may send suffering. Reflecting on this verse, Calvin said, we are not brought to real submission until we have been laid low by the crushing hand of God. Can you relate it all to this? Have you in any way experienced God's working in this way? Oh, how often we need a good dose of helplessness to strip away our false sense of self-confidence. <laughs> and how blinded we are, how blinded by sin we are to prefer to trust in our own puny power rather than the power of God, which Paul says here, raises the dead. Not power that raised the dead, past tense only. Power that raises present today the dead. So as hard as this lesson must have been for Paul and how hard as it is for us, it's a precious gift to be in a spot where we are forced to trust in God rather than in ourselves. Yesterday I saw an article written by the wife of a, of a bivocational church planter whose other job required him to travel a lot. And, and she was reflecting in this article on other traveling spouses 
who, who would say that God made their husband or wife independent so that they could handle the time away. The, the, the sentiment was, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. And she, she, she considered that and asked the question, well, what about me? I'm not independent. And I, don't, and I know I can't handle multiple days of caring for twin boys by myself. And she goes on to make the point, it's not that God gives us what we can handle. It's that he gives us what we can't handle, so we lean on him, not on ourselves. I think that's exactly what Paul's saying here. I think that's precisely the point Paul's making in verse 9. Our suffering, a purpose in our suffering, is that we might rely on God rather than on ourselves. Second purpose for our suffering is that we might know the comfort of Christ. That we might know the comfort of Christ. Notice in verse 5, Paul says there that as he shared abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, he also shared abundantly in God's comfort through Christ. Paul suffered a lot in every conceivable way. But Jesus Christ suffered more. Jesus suffered more physically, more socially, and spiritually than Paul ever did. So Paul's being comforted through Christ, it's a benefit then, I think, and important for us to consider, how was Christ comforted in his suffering? And there's at least three ways that are worth our consideration. First, Christ was comforted. He received God's comfort through joy. As Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy that was set before Him, Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. For joy, Jesus scorned the shame and took the nails. And this same joy overflows in our life and comforts us. Jesus also received comfort through exaltation, through the promise of exaltation. As Hebrews 12.2 says, he, for the joy that was set before him, he bore the shame, he endured the cross, and he is seated, he sat down on the right hand of the Father. Jesus knew His cross would be His exaltation. And this promise, this overflows to us in the promise that those who are in Christ will reign with Christ. And so as those who are in Christ, we can conclude with Paul that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. The promise of exaltation and the glory to come comforted Jesus. And it's meant to comfort us since we too one day will be exalted 
with Christ. Jesus was also comforted with the Father's approval. As he was baptized, God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus lived to do the Father's will, and his reward was the Father's pleasure in him. Is it not a comfort to you, O Christian, that since you are in Christ, the Father is pleased with you in the very same way He's pleased with the Son. So in and through Christ, God looks down and said, this is my Son, this is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And one day He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, what comfort it is to know that even though we suffer, God is pleased with us. So I wonder this morning, where do you turn for comfort in your suffering? Psychologists? The internet? Entertainment, movies, books? Hobbies? Food? Human relationships? See, any comfort you may find in the things of this world will eventually prove to be inadequate. And it won't last. The source of true comfort is God Himself. And this comfort is realized most clearly and most intensely through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ suffered to pay the penalty of sin. He was raised by God's power Confirming his sacrifice was sufficient and complete. And Jesus is reigning today at the Father's right hand. And in this message, in this gospel, you are offered the promise of full forgiveness and eternal life in his presence. Have you experienced that comfort? Do you know of that comfort? If not, I would call you this morning to turn from your sins, and to trust in this good news and experience this deep and lasting comfort from God. And there are times for us as Christians, I, there are for me, perhaps for you as well, where we can feel really distant from this experience of God's comfort when we suffer. Have you ever failed to sense God's comfort in your suffering? We all have. And, and this is a reminder as we think about here how Paul's comforted through the sufferings of Christ and the comfort through Christ. It's a reminder to us that we must continue to remember that God's comfort comes through Christ. His joy in suffering is our joy. We will be exalted with Him one day in glory. And we are fully approved by God in Christ. And I think if our focus is rightly on these things, focus rightly on Christ, we will see. We will see and experience God's comfort in our suffering. 
So we suffer so that our trust would be in God rather than self. We suffer so that we will know the comfort of Christ. And finally, we suffer so that we can share Christ's comfort with others. All through this passage, there's something one author described as like a spiritual algebra. Paul's suffering plus God's comfort equals comfort for others. It's all through this. What God did for Jesus in his suffering, Paul is confident God will do for him. And what God will do for Paul, he will do for all who trust in God. And this is the comfort he has through Christ that he passes on to the Corinthians. Get, get a picture of this. this. This community of experiencing and sharing together. And I think if we see this rightly, we'll realize that it's pretty countercultural. It's countercultural because it calls into question the individualism of modern Christianity in the sense of remoteness and isolation within and among so many of our churches. Denny insightfully concludes that out of our selfishness, we instinctively regard ourselves as the center of all providences. We naturally seek to explain everything by its bearing on ourselves alone. I think he's right. I think that's true. This is how we so often naturally think. It's kind of our default. We naturally think this way. But as one preacher said so well, reflecting on this, you are not just you sitting there. You are not just you sitting there. You are you with God in you. And so because we're in Christ together, we share together in His sufferings and His comforts. So in the communion of faith, no one alone is in distress. And no one receives consolation for himself alone. This is summed up so succinctly and well by Joet. He says, God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. God doesn't comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. Let's apply this as we think about our life together, as we think about this dynamic here. This active sharing in the suffering and comfort of others really happens best, and it happens most naturally where there is a formal identification with others who are in Christ. His body on display in a local church. So as you join with 
and live together as a member of a local church, know that neither sufferings nor comforts are meant to be gifts to you alone. And so as members of Eden Baptist Church, we need to learn to share our sufferings with each other in the right way, of course. We need to share these things. You see, God often comforts us through others. And if we aren't open to each other, we may be closed to His comfort in some way. So, in this, as we think about this, we need to dismiss the the notion. It's, It's a very natural thought. It's one that I have. We need to dismiss the the natural notion that we can only be of comfort to someone if we have suffered in the same way that they have. Or that one can only be of comfort to me if the same thing has happened to them. Now, Now it is true, and of course, one who has personally experienced God's comfort through, say, the trial of the loss of a loved one ought to be of a particular and specific encouragement to others who later experience that same trial. But we don't have to experience the same sufferings of another in order to give or receive comfort. The shared comfort that we see here, it's not connected to a common experience. It's connected to a common identity. All who are in Christ share together in His sufferings and His comforts. And it's also, I know, very easy for us to feel fear and to be hindered in this by fear as we seek to share comfort with others. I mean, really, how many of you find it really easy to know what to say when you hear of the suffering of someone else? It's not easy for me. But we need to remember that we don't always have to say anything. And in fact, perhaps one of the best things we can do to comfort someone else, simply to pray for them. In verse 11 here, Paul mentions prayer at the end of this introduction. And there's so much here about prayer that would be good to talk about, which we're not going to do. But he says that their prayers for him are a blessing to him. I think Paul would say there's a sense in which he's receiving comfort through the prayers of the Corinthians. So we should pray for others. That's something we can do in spite of our fears of what to say. And then we can just be there. Again, don't have to always say something. Allow the comfort of God to flow through your presence. So often I'm encouraged simply by your presence. Being there means something. 
And we can encourage people simply by being there and showing interest in their pain. So this short introduction to 2 Corinthians shows us a picture of who God is. We see Him as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, comfort from Him that is real, complete, and guaranteed. We also see a clear picture of suffering. It's inevitable for all who are in Christ, and it has a purpose. Our suffering is designed to cause us to rely on God rather than ourselves, to know and experience the comforts of Christ, and to comfort others in their suffering. As Hughes said, in the service of Christ, there may be disappointments, but there cannot be despair. There may be conflicts, but never doubts. There may be affliction, but never without comfort. So I can't think of a better way to close this message than in the way we started with in our service this morning, by considering the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. So I invite you all to stand, and let's answer again this question. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong He has fully paid for all my sins in his precious, with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because... So, Father, we ask in light of your truth here that we would rightly see you. We, we praise you for being who you are. You are the Father of all mercies. You are the God of all comfort. And thank you, Father, in your grace for extending your comfort to us, for showing us your comfort through Christ. Father, as we suffer, as all of us suffer in some way to some degree, may you strip away our self-reliance and cause us to trust in you. Help us, Father, as we suffer to know and experience the comforts of Christ. And Father, help us to look outside ourselves and in our suffering, comfort others and allow your comfort of us, to us, to encourage and comfort others. Father, please accomplish these things in us, in this church, for your glory. Amen. Let's take a moment, Let's take a moment and silently consider what